Hello and welcome to the ARC Podcast. I'm Adam. And I'm Joy. Today we had Ruth Everhart, uh, the author of Ruin, as a guest. She was actually in town and came into the Tyndale offices and we got to uh, sit down and talk with her. Mm-hmm. And she tells the story of one brisk November night during her senior year at a small Midwestern Christian college when two armed intruders broke into the house she shared with her roommates and held all five girls hostage and took turns raping them at gunpoint. And she talks about how she reeled through fear and insecurity and guilt and how she really believed she was ruined, hence the title of the book, both physically and in the eyes of God. And this book is a story of honesty and raw courage and how she has found the love of God to be true and real even in the midst of horrific circumstances. Mm -hmm. And our conversation spanned a wide variety of topics from how being a parent to daughters sort of inspired her to to write her story and being a pastor, how she's inspired to um, reach out to those who have been abused and how the the church and even individuals can respond uh, Mm -hmm. to people who have experienced violence in their own past. Mm-hmm. So we trust that you'll not only find this as a captivating story, but also a relevant help for you who have either experienced something similar or know of someone who has. It's relevant for everybody. So uh, check out the book at Tyndale.com. You can read the first chapter for free there, or you can uh, visit Ruth's website, RuthEverhart.com. So please enjoy the interview. So if we want to start, if you can just tell us a little bit about your background, what you do now, and then what brought you to uh, write the book. Right. So I grew up in a very faith-based home, went to Christian schools all my life, went to Calvin College, which is a church-affiliated college, uh, and then had this uh, traumatic event happen that the book is springboards from, um, an event of sexual violence that made me feel ruined, which is where the book's title comes from. Mm -hmm. And after that, um, I did just kind of thrash about quite a bit and eventually found my way into ministry. Um, Growing up in a place where women were not ordained, um, that was a big uh, part of my journey. But um, I was ordained in 1990 as a Presbyterian minister and I've been serving ever since. I served a number of congregations, large and small, and then really felt called to write this story down. I think it started when my own daughters um, got to be about the age I'd been when um, I was uh, robbed and raped and held hostage. And I realized that it was just really hard for me to parent them at that moment in their life and I just felt my own woundedness and and so I wanted to be a better mother I wanted to dig into what was rearing up and so I um, I started to write I started to reinvestigate that part of my life which you know when you have a traumatic event the impulse is to bury it you know to turn from it and so I decided that to be a more whole person, I needed to turn back to it and reinvestigate it. So that's what I did. And what emerged was the memoir. Mm -hmm. We were noticing that you also wrote another book 
uh, previous to this, and it looks like you have a pretty distinct style of wanting to share a story and memoir. What drove you to, um, first of all, share a vulnerable story such as this, but then also gravitate towards that style? Right. Well, I... <laughs> I love theology and, and I love and I used to love doctrine and, and I think what's happened in my life is that I've come to see that doctrine apart from narrative really is dry and really does not have the punch and the meaning either for me or for the people I'm trying to reach so I think as a preacher as well as as a writer and I and, and doctrine doesn't exist in some ethereal place you know what we think about God matters and so I'm really interested in that connection between what we think about God and how we live day to day as followers of Jesus. And so um, even as a preacher, you, you don't reach people by giving them systematic points. You know, you, you reach them through story. And so that became really my, that really developed over time for me was, was how, do I, how do I communicate the gospel? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I have to say, I've, I've, I, I'm not all the way through it yet, but I couldn't put it down. It's very well written. And um, on that same point, we interviewed somebody last week who, he, he's a pastor. He set out, he didn't specifically set out to write a memoir. He set out to write more of a pastory uh, theology or a Christian living type book. And once he started writing, he realized the story was what was powerful. So he went and the editor helped him go in that direction. So. I think mm-hmm. you're right about it's uh, that's where the, um, the story is the powerful it's mm-hmm. it. how it connects to people mm-hmm. really deeply mm-hmm. yeah so what do you think are some of your hopes for this book maybe for the, our listeners who have not had a chance to read it yet obviously you can give us an overview of what you share and then again your hopes for what you hope people to get out of it well I hope that uh, I, I think I have two main hopes. One is really for individuals and one is more for the church community. I hope that individuals who read this book will see their own story um, reflected or connected um, in this story. I mean, my story is particular. It, I, you know, I was a, quote, good girl, a pious girl, who then had something awful happen to her. That story is not unusual. The exact thing that happened to me may be a little more dramatic than happens to some people. Not everyone is, you know, raped at gunpoint, which is what happened to me. But on the other hand, I think everyone has the experience of things happen that they did not expect to happen. And so how do, how do you see the hand of God in that? And how do you feel about God afterward? And how do you go on to live your life? So. I hope that by telling my story, other people who are wrestling with their stories will just see me as uh, someone who has tried to do this, and it will give them courage um, or maybe a sense of direction or a sense that there's a companion on that journey that you don't have to um, put your story in a box in the back of your head and be afraid of it. You know, you can open it up and look at it. So that's my hope for individual readers, especially women who have experienced sexual violence or people who love women who have experienced sexual violence. You put those two categories together, you have pretty much all humans on the planet, uh, I believe, um, Mm -hmm. because women are so frequently uh, brutalized in our society. Mm -hmm. 
And, um, and then the other thing is I, I do have this hat of being a church leader. And I think the church has not done what it could do for victims. It, there's silence, there is secrecy, there is often blame. There is the focus on sexual purity that just adds layers of pain to people who have already experienced pain. So my secondary hope for the book is that it will help enable uh, churches, it will be a tool for church leaders perhaps, a a resource for a pastor to give to a, a, a victim, but also then to talk about it, you know, to have a book club, have a small group and use these words together that we often don't want to use. You know, when was the last time you heard the word rape used in a sermon? I mean, and yet it is part of human experience. So, so my, so I hope that it's a useful tool for opening dialogue in Mm -hmm. congregations and faith communities. Mm -hmm. What do you think are some ways that churches can um, better open up or be a comfort to people who've been victims of sexual violence? Yeah. Well, I think one of the big things is to break the secrecy and the silence, which is to start using the words. Um, And I see two main ways to do that. One is in the pulpit in preaching, and one is in announcements and saying these are resources. We have a group for people who've experienced violence. We have a group uh, that you can talk, you can have a discussion about, is God our Father? Let's think about that if we've been brutalized by a male. You know, let's actually talk about that. Mm-hmm. So you can you can have that in an announcement, but you can also in the pulpit you can actually use the texts that are um, that are difficult, the ones we avoid, the ones Phyllis Tribble famously called the texts of terror. You know, um, the rape of Tamar, mm-hmm. the rape of Dinah. These things are recorded in Scripture, or the Psalms of Lament that we so often ignore. Um, the, the Psalms of Lament are such a resource for people in travail. And so um, so if the church can break its silence, can draw on these resources of scripture and uh, learn how to listen more effectively to victims, you know, give them a chance to tell their story and to listen without blame or judgment and just mm-hmm. to be a companion to them mm-hmm. on that journey. And then the final thing I would say is to create a relationship with a uh, a resource like um, a, a therapist's office where someone is thoroughly licensed and accredited and that you trust and that you can send that person for confidential help because most pastors are not ready for the kind of work that needs to be done mm-hmm. yet they can be a doorway to that kind of work and and uh, and be a resource to that mm-hmm. that person mm-hmm. Right. I think you cover so much, Ruth, you know, talking about really just an overview of inviting the church to be aware that this is an issue with the announcements and then encouraging individuals or loved ones, you know, individuals to be a part of those groups and then more so on a granular level to talk about real issues with Mm -hmm, someone who's, mm -hmm. who's licensed to do that. And, you know, in your book, you talk about how you were with other women um, when this happened, do you keep in touch with them? Have they been a part of your healing process? Well, this happened in 1978, long before we had social media. And so our relationship had uh, had frayed or gone away. Once we went through the court system and our lives diverged, we quit um, staying in contact with each other. And 
it was maybe six years ago or so when I was really wrestling with these issues in terms of raising my daughters, the first thing that I did was recontact them because one of my questions was, did our friendship fray, because that's just what happens when you graduate from college and you go your own separate ways and you build a life, or was this something that frayed because of what happened to us? Was, it so, was our friendship indeed something that the rapist stole from us? Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, even though at that time it was 30 plus years since we had had this event happen, when we reconnected, um, it, we got past the pleasantries. I mean, we just cried buckets together. Mm. And it, it was hard, but it was also healing. And it was um, to, to share, well, how did this affect my life? What were the long-term effects of it? Um, was part of what unleashed the story in me and said, no, there's, this is worth talking about in a, in a larger venue because I mean, we may be three of us here who were victims, but there's lots of us, mm -hmm. and how can we help each other? So it was, it was wonderful to reconnect with them and to admire the women they've become. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, um, do you have any advice for maybe um, a lot of people might know someone who's been raped or that experienced other abuse, um, but maybe they haven't experienced it themselves? Give me advice for like a friend or family member when comforting somebody yeah. that yeah. they know. I think that one of the biggest things you can do for people who've been the victims of trauma is simply see them and look them in the eye and communicate to them that they have value and that you are there to hear their story. And that's, it may sound really simple and like, come on Ruth, don't you have more than that to offer me? <laughs> But, you know, I think that we are reticent to do that. We, are, we do not want to bear each other's pain because we have enough of our own. You know, so when we know that someone has been through something really horrific, uh, we don't necessarily want to go there with them um, so that we, we turn away. And so to not turn away, to look them in the eye and say, I understand something terrible has happened to you and I want you to know that I care about you and that I'm here when you are ready to tell me. Mm -hmm. And then to actually follow through on that promise and to listen to the story and not uh, even unintentionally communicate um, blame. I mean, I, don't, I think a lot of people don't set out to communicate blame, but our questions can be ill-advised and so without even meaning to you know y you say well y this man approached you in, in a bar well why were you in the bar and how much what did you drink and who were you with and what were you wearing well and uh, you know it's understandable to ask questions but sometimes our questions are very loaded even even if we don't know so in a sense we really have to learn how to listen and to ask the right question and to provide space for that person uh, to tell her story. Because chances are, there is not that space in her life. You'd be surprised how few people want to give another person that space. So to give them that sacred space and that loving attention to hear their story, because it's easy to say, I'll pray for you. And then 
I mean, even if you do, and that's that's fine. But what about praying with her, mm-hmm. and uh, just being a companion in that place, um, and then to not expect that she's going to be over it in two weeks, or two months, or six months, or on some timetable. Mm-hmm. That this this event will have shaped her, and it will take her years to become this new person. Mm-hmm. If she's willing to. Some people put it in a box and hide it away, and as a pastor, I know how that pain then comes out later. And so that's why I'm so big on dealing with it as it happens and letting it unfold and in the layers that it has to, because God can do something with it, if but we have to keep it open and be vulnerable. Mm-hmm. Which is mm-hmm. which is difficult. So you make a very good point about seeing these women. And I think it's very easy for us to be so uncomfortable with the subject matter, with ourselves, with our own pain, not knowing how to deal with it, and so we just avoid it. And I think the avoidance is almost worse than recognizing, admitting we don't understand what it feels like. We hopefully never will, but wanting to be there as a participant. And then also the time frame. Grief does not have a timetable. And like you've experienced in your own story, Ruth, going through different stages in life touches on different trigger points. Yes. You know, when you were a teenager or even a young mom, some of the things probably didn't come up to when your girls were teenagers themselves. And so to realize that the story is not over even when the counseling session is done or, you know, the first couple of years pass, but that it, it reoccurs and it needs to be continually addressed by loved ones and then by the Lord, ultimately. Mm-hmm. 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 How have you seen, as you've become a leader in church and then have explored your own story, how have you seen God be involved in that? Because I'm sure it was... You know, you were a good girl, as you called yourself at the beginning, having probably a certain view of God, and then that view being challenged by what had happened. Yeah, I think that growing up, my attitude was pretty simple, pretty common for Christians, which is almost the Santa Claus version. I'll be a good girl, and I'll get good stuff. (laughs) And even if you would put it in a lot fancier language, a lot of times Christianity can boil down to that. And so when that's ripped away, well, I was a good girl, but I didn't get good stuff. I got crap. Mm -hmm. I got pain. I got trauma. Then you have to go a lot deeper and say, okay, well, um, uh, how does, how does God relate to me? And, and then I, I, how does Jesus as as a, as God wrapped in human flesh, Mm -hmm. um, how does that relate to me? I mean, Jesus story of going through pain and suffering, um, is becomes a different kind of story when you feel like you are also suffering. So, uh, so yeah, I, I I dove right into that headlong by ending up in seminary and um, wrestling it down. And as is common of so many things, I think the more I studied, the more I knew that I didn't know anything. I I, I it used to be easier to preach when I I thought I could actually explicate a text. Now I stand under a text and I say, I think this might be something of of what it's about, but it is a holy mystery. Mm -hmm. So my attitude towards God now is of understanding how little I understand Mm -hmm. and of really being under that divine mystery and especially in the the person of Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. Um, 
just I find that awesome. I mean that I don't uh, not understand um, why God would become incarnated in this flesh, which brings us uh, to so much to a world of pain. So um, I used to think I had to think it all right. Mm. And now I know that I will never think my way to the other side. So it's about um, about living as closely as I can according to that, that, uh, that person of Jesus Christ or that Lord and Savior of Jesus Christ and being more comfortable with not knowing and, uh, and just uh, standing under the divine mystery. Mm-hmm. You know, I was a Calvinist, and Calvinists really like to think their way through <laughs> things. They think they can do that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Let's all chuckle. Uh-huh. <laughs> it is a mystery. Jesus calls it that so for a reason. Um, we didn't prepare you for this, but I don't know if there was any excerpts or anything you wanted to read. People often find of interest too, um, and I, I hear from a lot of readers, they read the epilogue uh, somewhere after they've maybe read their way through their crime and they, they have to assure themselves that I survived the crime and mm-hmm. could actually write the book. Um, and so the epilogue I think is a really important piece of the book. Mm-hmm. And I talk about why I wrote wrote it and, and it has to do with my daughters who were in their 20s. Mm-hmm. So this is, this is from the epilogue. Mm-hmm. I'm addressing my daughter, my younger daughter Clara. Clara, you were a junior in high school when a man entered an Amish school in Nickel Mines, Pennsylvania with an arsenal of guns. He dismissed the boys and bound the girls by their hands and feet. Possibly he intended to hold the girls hostage and rape them. But law enforcement arrived quickly. The gunmen shot the girls in the back of their heads, one after the other. I read all this as I was cooking supper and the smell of curried cauliflower filled the kitchen. The article captured the reaction of the father of one of the dead girls who was grateful that his daughter had escaped, quote, a worse fate, Mm -hmm. by which he meant that she had not been raped, just executed with a bullet to the back of the head. When I read those words, worse fate, I was actually unable to breathe. I felt like the father had stepped on my chest with both feet and pushed all the air out of my lungs. It took an effort to suck in my breath again, and when I did, I bellowed. The sound I made must have been primal, like someone giving birth or someone dying. Maybe it was like the wail of watching a loved one die. Clara, you came running into the kitchen terrified and found me with the newspaper trembling in my hands. I could smell the cauliflower starting to burn, but I didn't care. Listen to me, I yelled, listen to me. If you are ever attacked, which won't happen, but if it does, if you are ever attacked and it comes down to being raped or being killed, you must survive. It is your business to survive. Surviving is the only thing you must do, however you can, because you will recover. You can recover from anything as long as you have breath in your body. I may have bellowed that entire speech without taking a breath. 
In many ways, it was a strange response. Normally, it would be my bent to stand by the side of another parent, especially a grieving parent in a tragic circumstance. And I did feel sorry for this Amish father and the loss he had endured, but I didn't understand him. Or maybe I did. Maybe that was the problem. What he said was abhorrent to me. Could a parent think his child's survival was second to anything? Was he suggesting that his daughter's perceived bodily purity was more important than her retaining breath in that body? How could a father whose own flesh had helped to create that flesh, that female flesh, prefer his daughter dead over damaged? What is this alleged worse fate? Imagine saying such a thing about another injury, a broken body, a broken bone, or a punctured lung. Are those fates worse than death? Of course not. You would call an ambulance. You would schedule surgery. You would remedy the damage. You would give thanks that the wounds were not fatal. So why is a violation of a female's sexual part so much worse than a broken bone? This is a, a paragraph people like too. The truth is that women who have been sexually violated have the same intrinsic value as women who have not been sexually violated, period. Another human cannot damage a woman's sexual self and by doing so destroy her life. Daughters don't believe the lies. You are more than your virginity. You are more than your sexual history. You are more than what happens to you. You are immensely valuable. No wound can ever make you less than whole. Wounds become scars, and scars make a person beautiful. In fact, nothing is more washable than human skin. It is the most washable substance on earth. Mm. Thank God. Mm. Must have been incredible for your sweet daughters to grow up in your home. Mm. Because for them to have a mother who has survived and has honored the Lord and isn't making her life mission to share it with other people. For them to have soft hearts towards those who have suffered and to be attentive because I think so often we just gloss over, we ignore, we don't recognize. And I think that's the beginning of it all. It's mm -hmm. mm -hmm. mm -hmm. beautiful, Ruth. So thank you so much for your time. And if um, people want to read the book, which are hoping they do, it comes out tomorrow, August 2nd, and they can go to your blog, too, to find out more. What is the address? It's RuthEverhart.com. Okay. And you blog there regularly? Yes. Sir? Okay. And there's a, if you want to get a preview, there's a free chapter download at our website at Tindale.com or... Um, mm -hmm. There's no more. <laughs> yeah, no. There's also, you know, we didn't mention the study guide. Study guide yes, right. study yes. guide of questions to go yes. through. Yes, and there's actually two sets of questions because kind of in a way reflecting my hopes for the book, one is for general readers, just women who might, women or men who might uh, be reading it, and then one is for faith leaders because I do hope there will be, uh, use it as a springboard. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, um, absolutely. That's good. Great. And you can purchase the book anywhere books are sold. Yes. And thank you so much for being <laughs> with us today. Thank you, Adam. Thank you, Joy. Uh -huh. It was a pleasure. Thank you, Ruth.